Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peak. It's 2022, and the official new color of the year, Very Perry, is here, according to Pantone. But how does this work? Is there a method to choosing the color of the year? Are there undiscovered colors out there still waiting to be found? And how do we make color nowadays, anyway? We're speaking today with Renzo Shamey, SEBA Professor of Textile Chemistry in NC State's Wilson College of Textiles, about the science of color creation. Welcome, Renzo. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. Let's start with, why are we doing a, a color of the year? Is this just a thing because we can? Is it a PR thing? Is it created to fill specific needs in industries? Yeah. May I answer this question by briefly expressing what color means to me? Yes. Um, Carl Jung, who was a psychoanalyst, said... Colors are the mother tongue of the subconscious, and they express the main psychic expressions of man in our lives, right? And when when we teach students about color, I tell them, think about color not just from the point of production and quality control, but about everything that you do. You wake up in the morning, you decide, you you go for a pair of socks that you choose, unless, you know, you're struggling to find a pair of socks in the first place. But, (laughs) you know, you can think about the material that we buy, right? You go to a store to buy clothes. One of the first things that attracts you is color. And that's a nice color. Let's go and have a look. And then you decide, well, is is this the right price, right, to pay for it? So color comes first. And then you kind of think about cost and all the other things. So color really plays a really important role in the retail sector. And uh, it, it also plays a critical role in our psychoanalysis of uh, kind of things that we come across. You know, when, when I see you, I kind of evaluate you subconsciously, you know, what you're wearing, how you're dressed, you know. And one of the first things that I see is your color selection, color choices. So colors play a big, important role in our daily lives. And they also play a major important role in industrial decisions. Industrial production of material that are colored is in a, in a very large way are influenced by the color of the material that's being produced. Okay. Um, so the Pantone color of the year uh, really started in the year 2000. In 2007, they had a press release. Uh, and since then, it's become a trend-setting kind of uh, for forecasting decisions, for um, uh, essentially talking about creative design and kind of generating material uh, that uh, will sell better. So this affects uh, purchasing decisions in different industries from fashion to home furnishings to industrial design and different sectors of uh, production. And this year's selection, the one that you just talked about, very Perry, um, has the qualities of two different colors, blues that tend to um, kind of uh, create the impression of uh, loyalty and calmness we are living in a transformative period of time. And because of the fact that we are actually going through this COVID problem and issues, we are not really able to predict what's going to happen in future. The red undertone is meant to provide some creativity, some uh, kind of happiness and joy. You know, So it's a combination of two colors. And it's meant to, according to Pantone, it's meant to uh, provide us with um, calmness and help us revision our future. So that's the color of the year. So the answer to your question is yes, 
Um, we do this because we can. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, of course, our decisions are based on the societal needs, industrial needs. And uh, we also uh, try to express our subconscious mind, you know. So going back to Carl Jung's uh, kind of uh, quote, uh, I think colors are always there because we think about them. Right. And that they also influence our decisions, purchasing decisions included. That's really fascinating. I never thought that they went into sort of psychological detail behind how they right. mix that particular color or pick that particular shade. Um, and that kind of answered my second question, which is, you know, why do they do what they do? And you answered that with because they're trying to sort of meet the like larger societal or psychological needs of a particular right. moment. Right. Do you know how exactly they go about that at Pantone? Do they have like a committee of people inside the company or do they, you know, solicit opinions from experts such as yourself? Right. So um, the selection is made by a committee. Uh, I'm not an expert on the actual process. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but I've gathered from different sources that the entire process is actually a bit secretive. Um, so they don't talk about the you know individuals involved, but I gather that there is an international committee of color experts, and they examine color in every aspect of our lives. You know, from um, movies, from sporting events, from fashion and industry, and that new technologies, new arts, traveling kind of destinations, uh, even things like sandals in Brazil or. Uh, I don't know, uh, cars that are made in Korea, you know. So they're looking at all of these features, trying to understand what will be the trend setting colors in future. How would these colors influence our decisions in general? And how the socioeconomic conditions as well as the societal conditions might influence such decisions. So they put all of these uh, thoughts together, meet multiple times, and then they come up with a color that they decide is the representative of the year and how it might hopefully create a better mood for additional purchasing in future. Okay. That is interesting. I like the sort of top secret color committee. It is a bit. Well, let's move into sort of um, a more, I guess, hands-on approach to color. How do we even make color nowadays? I know that you can go to the paint store and you give them a paint chip and they have a little mixing machine and right. stuff like that. But how are we getting the pigments? What are they made of now? Now, are we still squishing up beetles or plants to make dyes? How does that work? Exactly. Actually, we do still make colorants from plants and animal sources, biological sources. So you're absolutely right. Cochineal beetles are still being collected from cacti leaves that so they get dried up and then converted into a powder form. And uh, the powder becomes the base of a colorant that we apply in the co coloration of textiles and other types of material. Um, cochineal beetles, by the way, are still being used today. And part of the reason for it is because some people have uh, health and safety concerns about the colorants that are added to food and beverages. And they consider natural sources better kind of representations of uh, natural colorants. Essentially, they might be considered safer. Um, having said that, at the moment, uh, if you think about the resources required to produce a large quantity of beetles, it is not sustainable and uh, it cannot meet the demands of the industry. So 
right now we don't really use these things in a large quantity. Artists and you know people uh, in the crafts industry might be using them, but uh, and the small industries might try to use these things, but in industrial quantities they are not sustainable. Another colorant with a natural kind of uh, root is indigo, which was planted here in North Carolina also from indigofera. Um, so if you think about the denims that we wear these days, they're all usually colored with indigo. And, but that indigo is made synthetically right now. We don't produce it from plants because, again, it wouldn't be sustainable. It wouldn't be um, actually from an environmental point of view. It wouldn't be friendly. So right now, the coloration industry is based on synthetic colorants. And these colorants are made with cost, effectiveness, uh, application in mind. And they try to kind of consider toxicological issues as well as environmental issues. And uh, there's about 100,000 colorants, registered colorants out there that we can use. And amongst these, there are 1,000 commercially important ones. Uh, so yes, when you go to your Home Depots or Lowe's, these pigments, these colorants have been tested and tried. Of course, we keep testing these colorants all the time. Um, but our current understanding is that synthetic colorants are more environmentally friendly and uh, they actually are more effective. You use a small quantity of them to produce the same color that you would use with a large quantity of natural colorant. Right, because I was thinking, my gosh, we would wipe out those poor beetles if we were trying to use exactly. them. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. There would be no more beetles. Exactly. Um, with the synthetic colorant, they're put into different, I guess, bases that would stick better to particular things? Yes, so uh, I, maybe I should explain that a little bit better. So there is a molecule um, that is colored, right, and that molecule is synthesized in either a kind of simple way or through a complex uh, combination of colorants, other types of material. The actual material that's produced is called a colorant, but it can be divided into either a pigment or a dye. The idea being that you require some kind of a binder. Uh, you have to stick it to a surface. You know, it doesn't stick on its own. You know, it does require some kind of a glue. And we call those binder-based pigments. And they're applied to our walls and our cars, or plastics, you know, some of the material like that. And then there are dyes. Dyes interact on a molecular level with textiles. So we apply them with a solution. And this solution penetrates the textile material and the colorant goes in there and stays in there with chemical interaction with the substrate. So we don't need a binder anymore. Um, so the success of each of these will depend on their application and their end use. If you are using a colorant to uh, color your car, you want it to not fade under sunlight. Uh, you want it not to scratch easily, for example, the binder. If you're using a colorant for textiles, you're interested that it shouldn't create problems uh, to human health, you know, anybody who is wearing it. They should also not create problems to the environment because some of the colorants will be washed off and released to the waters, you know, and the land, etc. And some of these colorants have been problematic in the past and we are trying to uh, address that issue at this point in time. And as a follow-up, I know this is sort of a weird question, but is it, are we still creating quote-unquote new colors? I mean, they're not colors outside of our visible spectrum, obviously, but more like shades of color. Um, or have we pretty much run the gamut of shades? And 
you know, is there some master library of color out there with a certain number in it? Or, you know, are there criteria that need to be met before you go willy-nilly creating a new shade? That's a fantastic question, but it's a multi-component question. Right. Uh, so let's go with the first part of that question first. Obviously, we can make new colorants. Like I said, a molecule can be designed that will absorb certain rays of light and will convert the, that ray of light to a different form of energy. For example, with solar cells, you know, those are some of the colorants that are made. We are, we have colleagues in the college, that uh, College of Textiles, who are producing new dyes for solar cells. Uh, we can produce new dyes to treat cancer. We can produce new colorants that that have industrial applications that uh, will be used in watches, et cetera, you know, for fluorescence and uh, fluorescent kind of applications. And uh, we have also other simple application colorants in textiles, some dyes that uh, have different properties, for example. They fade less or they wash, for example, better. Um, so it is definitely possible to produce a new color, new colorant. Uh, there was a new colorant, uh, a new blue that was... Uh, synthesized uh, at Oregon State University, I believe, in 2009. And uh, the only reason they called it a new blue was because it's a luminous color, a vivid color, even when you mix it with water or oil, you know, and that is one of the features of blues. They kind of fade a little bit in water or oil. So definitely possible to produce new colorants. But of course, anything that is produced is still going to be in the visible range, you know. So uh, we are not going to be surprised uh, with a new something that hasn't been seen before. Um, we are just going to see a different kind of, uh, if you like, um, angle to that color, you know. So it's possible, for example, to generate new range of colors for different applications. Um, but all of these would still be within the confines of human vision, right? right. So that's part one. Now, about color libraries, yes, there are multiple color sorting systems out there. And uh, some of these are based on physical samples, physical chips. And um, to name a few, you have the Moncel system, you have the Pantone system, you have the natural color order system. And these are going to categorize colors based on certain criteria. For example, from light to dark, from less colorful to more colorful, from red to yellow to reddish yellow, etc. So this classification, this library allows us to communicate color with each other because there are notations that we can use to exactly specify which color we have in mind. And uh, when we use notations, it removes the ambiguity, it removes the problems in communication of color. If I say something is sunnier, or something is warmer, you might understand it, but to translate that into a practical kind of definition of color makes it very challenging. So these libraries of color, do they have sort of chemical recipes that go with them so Some that do. anybody can make it? Some do, yes. Uh, like Pantone, for example, they have their basic colors, and they will give you a matching system, and they will tell you in order to produce this particular color, these are the quantities of these basic colors that you need to use to mix and produce this particular color. Okay. But the other ones, other systems basically just tell you where this color sits in a mathematical space. And uh, you can take that color in that point of space and another color in a different point of space and calculate the difference between them. And by doing this, we can actually determine whether we've achieved our target color or not. Wow, never thought of it that way. By measuring the difference, is it 
like measuring the difference on a light spectrum? Is that what's happening with the amount of light being absorbed or refracted? Or Yeah, so this, to see color, we need light. Yeah. Of course, without light, you know, color has no meaning. Um, but color is uh, a multi-component uh, kind of sensation. Light is only one of those sensations. Then the other component is the observer, and the third component is the object itself. So the object is going to reflect some of that light and um, maybe absorb some of it. But the color that is seen is going to be detected by a human or by a device, right? So uh, it's going to be somewhat subjective if humans are evaluating it. Uh, and in terms of an instrumental evaluation, we use instruments because they provide an objective measure of color difference. So there are no differences. Uh, there are small differences, but these differences are just tolerance differences between machinery kind of readings. Okay. okay. Uh, and it makes it so much easier to communicate how that difference can be translated back into the quantity of the colorant that is missing. So the measurement uh, communicates with the reader in a mathematical form the amounts of primaries that need to be present in the colorant, uh, in, in, in the form of a colorant, to generate that target color that you have in mind. Okay. I hope that makes sense. That does make sense. And if you're out there in the world, you know, experimenting with colors and you, you produce something that's new or different or unique, um, how do you go about getting that included in the libraries? Is that just an automatic thing? Like, is there a testing process for a new color? Do they have to, you know, pass muster in some way? And I'm saying new color, obviously not meaning a color humans have never seen before, right. but yes. this new creation. So um, there are organizations like the American Association of Textile Chemists and Colorists, that's in the U.S., or the Society of Dyers and Colorists in the U.K., and they collect information about all new colorants. And these colorants are first um, tested by the manufacturer, and the manufacturer will provide the organization with information about the molecular constitution of the colorant, its uh, properties in terms of performance against the washing, against the rubbing, against sweat. And all of these uh, characteristics are uh, com combined to generate the overall performance kind of structure of the uh, performance characteristics of the colorant, right? And uh, they are indexed uh, in a something called color index, right? So that's for colorants. Mm -hmm. In terms of the color libraries that I was just telling you about, color libraries essentially tell you um, there are components that uh, are required for the definition of color and they cover the entire range of visible colors. So uh, there isn't something missing there as such. Okay. Um, you know, if one chip is present and another chip is present and you want something in the middle, you can interpolate. You can sometimes, that interpolation is a, a simple linear interpolation or some other complex form of interpolation. But essentially, the space covers all the possible colors, and we simply find a way of communicating that. And different libraries have different ways of communicating that with the reader. Okay. And I don't know if I asked you this already, but if not, how many colors are in these libraries? Yeah. So some of these libraries will have physical chips that represent uh, small samplings of the space, for example, a very 
important uh, color library is the Mansell color order system. And um, that has about uh, 1,500 chips in it. Okay. All right. And the day, um, um, Pantone system also has something less than 2,000 chips or something like that. They have different types of arrangements for different sectors. Like they have something for textiles, something for fashion and home furnishings, etc. But these all encompass something in the range of 2,000 chips or so. Okay. Uh, so it's a limited range of samplings from a much wider area of colors that are visible to humans. And uh, the total number of colors that are visible to humans, that's the subject of another conversation, I think. I don't really think about color beyond picking out paint chips, mm -hmm. you know. So this is really interesting to think about all the work that goes into the stuff that you see on a sofa or a shirt or the wall. Yeah. Um, and I always ask people this question, which is, you know, what is the coolest thing you know about color or your favorite thing about working with color? The first thing that comes to mind is the discovery of the first synthetic colorant. And that was made in um, 1851, I believe, by a gentleman called William Henry Perkin. But the reason it's important is because he was an 18-year-old lad working in a a lab trying to produce an anti-malaria drug called quinine or quinine. And uh, essentially, during that process, he discovered this new purple color um, that was, remember purple or mauve or mauvine it's called, uh, that was a royal color. It was very difficult to produce nice purple colors that lasted a long time. So whenever I talk about this discovery to our budding color chemists in the college, mm -hmm. I see the spark in their eyes, and that's fan fantastic. You know, it's amazing to see that. The so-called structural color, you don't need a colorant to be present. So if you have micro kind of undulations on the surface of a material, uh, depending on how light hits it and the angle of viewing, you'll get different color sensations from that surface. And this is something that you might come across when you're looking at the uh, wings of a butterfly and uh, or a an oil slick. That is, uh, of course, interference, right, from waves. So these are becoming more and more important from an industrial kind of point of view. There is a lot of interest recently to try and recreate structural colors on a large scale because that would eliminate the use of colorants in the first place, right? So you don't really need a colorant. You just need to change the optical properties of material. Wow. Yeah. So would that, let's say that you could do that and you could paint it on a wall. Uh -huh. Would you be able to change the color of the room based on like the light that you shone on it or the direction that someone was standing in the room, they might see a different color wall than somebody else. Is that exactly? Yes. Yeah. So you can change the angle of your viewing and the color would be completely different. So depending on one angle, you might see blue another angle, you might see green. And, uh, you know, so that is also possible with something called e-inks or electronic inks. And uh, I believe you might have seen the ads from BMW there coming up with their, with their new concept cars where you can press a button and the color of the entire car is going to change. Is That's it? really cool. Yeah. That's something that I saw like in cartoons when I was oh, a little yes. kid. You know, it's, yeah. it's fantastical. Well, okay. One final question for you. Do you have a favorite color? My favorite color is purple. I think purple is a good choice. So very Perry is not too far off from not your, too your far preferred off. color scheme. Not too scheme. far off. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. 
Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Have a fantastic and colorful day. Oh, thank you very much. We've been speaking today with Renzo Shamey, SIBA Professor of Textile Chemistry in NC State's Wilson College of Textiles. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.